This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of All Things Considered CX. I'm your host, Bob Asman, the founder of Innovative CX Solutions, a past chairperson of the CXPA, and a practitioner with many years of transforming global operations and designing better customer experiences. Together with our guests and listeners, we seek to discuss, challenge, and create new understanding about how to inspire better experiences in response to ever-changing customer expectations. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the All Things Considered CX podcast. My name is Bob Asman, and I'm your host today as we continue to explore the interesting perspectives of our guest today, John Goodman. John has been a guest on my podcast in the past, and he always brings some really great insights and perspectives uh, into the world of experience management. So, John, welcome back to the podcast, and please uh, introduce yourself to our listeners Okay, thanks very much. Uh, first, I am not John Goodman, the actor, uh, though I've gotten bills for him. And uh, uh, really, we've spent the last 40 years looking at uh, customer behavior when customers have problems and questions. And for the first 35 years, we were focusing very heavily on complaint handling. Uh, we did the original study for the White House on uh, complaint handling that initiated the use of 800 numbers for customer service and quantified the payoff of word of mouth. Uh, twice as many people hear about a bad experience as a good experience. That's now a three to one ratio. And uh, our real claim to fame is that we can quantify the payoff of better service and quality in a way that even finance people will accept. And I guess two other quick things. We in the past five years have focused more on delighting customers, the other end of the spectrum, and found that there's huge golden nuggets to be found there. And uh, I've recently published my book, Strategic Customer Service, second edition, which uh, updates, including a lot of the delight research. John, it's always great to have you here because you said one key word, quantify. And there's so much content out there that is storytelling about experience management, which is just fine. But I think what you and your team bring to the table is this ability to quantify, to speak the language of the C-suite and be able to talk in terms of real changes in the financials of an organization when you improve. Is that a fair statement? Yes, exactly. Uh, we view that the chief financial officer and the chief marketing officer are the two key targets of any voice of the customer or CX pitch. And there you've got to come with numbers. Uh, I think it was Ronald Reagan said, you know, in God we trust all else must bring data. So that's, that's excellent. John, one of the topics right now within the experience management profession is metrics and measurements and the ROI of CX. And you and I have, have enjoyed some previous conversations about this, but Maybe as a as a foundational element, before we kind of get into the meat of our conversation today, you might share with us your view of the evolution of satisfaction measurements and maybe what might be missing in our current thought processes. 
Okay, great. Uh, we started out in, in the 1970s uh, with our research and Klaus Fornell at the University of Michigan with the American Customer Satisfaction Index uh, started at about the same time. And uh, we focused on customer satisfaction. What we found was a lot of people would say, yes, I'm satisfied, but no, I wouldn't recommend or I really wouldn't come back to you. So we've, we've decided satisfaction was a fairly flawed metric. And what we found was that willingness to recommend, well, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to keep using you, but I wouldn't recommend you to a friend. So we found that that was a much better differentiator. Uh, we then found that Another key factor is, did people say, yes, I had a problem or question versus no, I didn't. And what we found was that the minute somebody said I had a question or problem with my experience or this product, then their loyalty and willingness to recommend would normally drop about 20%. So we found that literally the question, have you had any problems, was a good metric. But one could enhance that by saying, did you have any problems? And by the way, here's a list of the kinds of problems you might have had. And we found that you turned up three times as many problems when you aided the customer with the list and gave them permission to tell you stuff that they normally would be embarrassed to tell you about. Then uh, Fornell created the American Customer Satisfaction Index, which I must admit I made fun of at the beginning, but that it's really stood the test of time. And several hundred major companies use that. And it is certainly a, a national metric that even in some cases, the federal government is using. Then Reichheld and Bain and Company came up with the net promoter in the 90s uh, and, and the early 2000s. And net promoter is a, a t on a 10-point scale where you take the promoters, the nines and tens, and subtract the detractors, the ones through sixes, to come up with the net number of promoters. And my concern is this is a blunt interest instrument. We can get into that in more detail. Then uh, in the last 10 years, I guess, customer effort has been suggested as a metric. Uh, which is how much effort does it take to get a problem resolved? That also has some interesting flaws. And then last November, uh, Reichheld came out with Net Promoter 3.0 that was attempting to fix some of the challenges that just the plain Net Promoter calculation uh, brought forth. So that's sort of a, a quick evolution of all the metrics that people have been focusing on. So, John, uh, am, I, am I understanding this correctly? If NPS 3.0 was brought out, what's inherently wrong with the previous versions of NPS? Well, were there, there, there were a number, and, and one certainly can't blame Reichelt for all of this. Uh, uh, it was put out there and then, then got used in all kinds of strange ways. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, Reichelt, even in his Harvard Business Review article, uh, calls out is the fact that people were using net promoter scores to evaluate individual frontline representatives. And so I'm Mary Lou handling your particular call and I get asked, you know, how likely is it you would recommend ABC company based on your interaction with Mary Lou? Well, Mary Lou didn't make the product. She didn't sell it to you. Uh, she's cleaning up the mess after the fact. So what he, he said in his article was that the use of net promoter for individuals uh, leads to begging and bribery, I think were two of the, fra the, the phrases he used uh, that, that were totally inappropriate. 
Uh, the other fundamental flaw that I've always had is that uh, when you are looking at a marketplace and you have a bunch of promoters and a bunch of people who are detractors, 40, 50, 60% in some cases of the entire marketplace is giving you a seven or an eight, which is, eh, yeah, you, you weren't bad, but, but I'm not really delighted. And uh, what his calculation does is drop that out completely. And what we have found is that contrary to what Reichelt says, which is that those people are passive, uh, we find that they're basically saying, well, uh, they were adequate. And we think adequate is faint praise. So if somebody says you're just adequate, you're really telling somebody, I wouldn't spend my money there. So we think that even the sevens and eights are a fairly negative, unexciting rating. And the net promoter calculation eliminates that completely, which, and it can be more than half of the entire market. Last comment on that is working with AAA of Southern California, we focused on the sevens and eights with some very simplistic programs that dazzled the customer and were able to move a bunch of those sevens and eights up to nines and tens. So uh, it, it, you're sort of ignoring what potentially could be the richest target to attack. John, I, I remember when organizations used the top three box calculation versus a top two because it would inflate their scores. That's a little bit about what you're talking about is that, that we need to really focus on moving the sevens and eights into nines and tens because sevens and eights just is not that good of a rating. Yeah, and interestingly enough, we're doing a lot of work in Japan right now, and that's been fairly traumatic uh, for the Japanese because nobody likes conflict or bad news. And uh, we've basically been saying on a five-point scale, you can't use the top three boxes. You really need to use the top box and not even the top two boxes. And, and so all of a sudden, the scores that used to be 93s are now 65s. And, and, but, but people grudgingly are admitting that, yes, you need to really focus on that, that top rating because anything less than that, to, to quote people at John Deere and Toyota, anybody who's giving you a seven or an eight, you're still competing on price. Yes, I'll keep using you, comma, until someone else gives me a better deal. And Deere and Toyota said, we don't want to compete on price. Therefore, those lower ratings are not acceptable. It's when value comes into play. And we're going we're gonna to jump into that in a few minutes. Um, in fact, one of, the, one of the things I've heard you talk about and write about, John, is you bring up lifetime value, but you've noted the difference between lifetime value and a phrase that I have to admit I haven't heard before, and that's conservative customer value. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, this, this actually came from, from a discussion that we were having with a CFO at, at one of the auto companies. And uh, uh, the uh, Dallas Lexus dealer, whose name will come to me in a minute, uh, wrote a book uh, called uh, you know, Customers for Life. And, and he talked about the lifetime value uh, 
of the customer was $346,000 over a 20 or 25 year period. And this CFO said, who knows if we're going to even be in this business, you know, 25 years from now. And, and that's precedent for what's happening in the auto industry where a bunch of them are moving to electric vehicles. So the, the challenge is that finance people really do ask that question. Well, how long can we be certain we're going to be in this business? And in a lot of cases, I use five years, but in conservative environments, we use three years. And the good news is when one is doing an economic model where you're focusing on the top line revenue implications, a three-year or even a two-year revenue stream is enough to allow you to demonstrate a positive ROI for most investments. So we think that that using lifetime value uh, it is a squishy term that finance people are inherently suspect of. And so it's better. What we normally do is we'll go to somebody in finance, what I call the resident financial cynic, and say, what would you say the value of a customer is that you would feel comfortable using? And if they say three years, we'll say, okay, do you mind if we use two and a half years? Oh, no, that's fine. Although it's sort of conservative. And so then you do the business case and then somebody looks at the cynic in the meeting and says, well, what do you think of this? And he says, well, my only criticism is that they're probably being a little too conservative. When you're criticized by finance for being conservative, you've carried the day. (laughs) That's an excellent example. So so, so we basically set a trap (laughs) by, by taking whatever number they give us, cutting it a little bit, and then all of a sudden they're on the other side of the argument. You know, John, I heard a a speaker, this was a few years ago, uh, with one of the big um, do-it-yourself blinds manufacturers, you know, for window coverings and so forth in residential homes. And they said that their lifetime value stretched out over seven years because customers, you know, didn't replace their blinds that often. That seems like a very long time on a small purchase. Yeah, and and the real challenge is that uh, well, we we see somewhat the same thing even with automobiles uh, that you know depending on what's happening in the economy, people replace their cars often or or not as much. Uh, yeah, what we would do in, a, in when there's a seven year time frame or or the worst I've run into is housing sales where where real estate people are trying to talk in terms of lifetime value and uh, they're how often do people move? So what we basically say is, okay, if you've got a, a longer term kind of a purchase, you know, basically say, okay, some percentage of these people over the next three years, maybe it's 30% of them are going to make a purchase. So let's take 30% of one purchase and use that. Uh, and and we actually have a paper that uh, I'm in the process of updating that's called the death of lifetime value. Which, which says you can use lifetime value till the cows come home, but no finance guy's ever going to believe it. Mm-hmm. We'll look forward to reading that paper for sure. So we, we touched now on getting a reasonable value, a customer value. What are some of the other factors, John, that you think are important to make a more effective business case? Uh, well, uh, one of the other critical things that I alluded to, uh, uh, even even when we were talking about the metrics, is that making a broad business case uh, about if we improve overall satisfaction this much, here's how much more revenue we're going to make. And that, in fact, is, is the uh, 
imp quote, improvement that Reichelt has made in Net Promoter 3.0 is that uh, in his article, he now says, well, in addition to uh, measuring the improvement in satisfaction, you should at the same time have your accounting department calculate how much more revenue you have gotten from customers you have won from referrals or word of mouth. And uh, his basic contention is you can then have, okay, we had a 10% increase in, in net promoter score or a 10, 10 point increase in net promoter score. And we have a $40 million increase in revenue. The problem with that is that you don't know exactly what you did that led to that increase either in net promoter score or in revenue. And also the other thing that I predict is that most accounting departments are going to say, are you kidding me? We can't do that calculation. And he does admit that it is a heavy lift for accounting. Uh, but there, there's a whole bunch of assumptions that have to be made. So I'm not convinced that Net Promoter 3.0 does much more uh, than Net Promoter because uh, it, what he, he says in, in the article is the purpose of earned growth, which is his term for revenue earned from referrals, is to develop audible, audible, audible statistics to validate investments in superior customer service. The point is that it's going to be very hard to gather that data and at an, making it really auditable is going to be really interesting. So I, I think theoretically it's an interesting idea, but, it, but it's, it's not necessarily practical, which comes back to my point that if you say we have this granular problem of people can't get timely quotes for our product, uh, and we are now going to fix that so that we can assure that everyone can get a quote for uh, their product in 24 hours, that we can see how many people had that problem. If we eliminate that problem, then we can see how many more people are going to be satisfied. We can convert that into revenue. And all of a sudden, we can now do a cost benefit and an ROI on a particular investment to fix a particular problem, which leads to X number of additional customers satisfied not having had a problem. So the first thing is it has to be granular issue identification. And uh, then you have to be able to say, what's the damage of this particular problem? And if you take the number of customers who had it times the damage that you're now preventing, you can then do a rough, rough but, but relatively accurate calculation of how much revenue you're saving or earning and then you can do your ROI. So John, let me ask you this question about the granular causes um, of the points of pain, as you call them. One of the challenges is I'm kind of reminded of the, of the quality technique of the five whys, uh, that too often you stop too early in the process to get really at the point of what is causing the failure. How do you overcome this tendency of organizations to, to not look deep enough into the source of the problem, but think they've got it captured and run with it too early when they really haven't found that points of pain? 
we we find that one of the the best ways of doing that analysis is to focus on uh, the the root cause of the problem and understand that there may be multiple ways of looking at it. The critical thing we find is that if one breaks things up into uh, what are caused by our staff, uh, which could be errors and such, what are caused by the customer, which are incorrect expectations uh, or customer incompetence. I'm an engineer, so I never read the directions uh, as opposed to Sharp Electronics says when all else fails, try reading the directions. And uh, then the company building unpleasant surprises by promising you're going to have a 20 megabit download speed when in fact three quarters of the time it's five five megabits uh and they're they're building unpleasant surprises into the product or service so uh well if one can start focusing on okay is this a customer expectational slash sales issue uh or customer competence uh or is it our service system or did we build unpleasant surprises into the product and that gets you, that sort of cuts through the five whys in a lot of cases. But what the way that we gather the data is that we start at the beginning of the customer journey and talk about, okay, when the customer's looking for the product, when they uh, are read the marketing, when they then buy the product, the product is delivered, they start using it. And a critical thing that I even just skipped is they were properly onboarded They were properly educated on how to use the product and what the limitations were. They use it and then they need service. Uh, In each of those areas, you can identify the three or four or five points of pain that normally are encountered. So you then go to the customer with a list of 20 to 40 problems and say, have you had any of these problems? And they will tie back nicely into either expectational or we purposely misled them or build an unpleasant surprise into the product, or we actually had a service person, the installer made a mistake when they installed the product. Excellent. John, one of the models that I um, came to know you through was your revenue risk model and the whole concept of prevention of errors and rather than picking up the pieces after the error has been made. For our listeners that aren't familiar with this revenue risk model, could you give us a a short overview of of what it does and how it focuses on this concept of prevention? Yeah, basically we find that uh, the way that you can get a very succinct snapshot of the customer experiences, you say, have you had any problems across your journey? If so, which problems were most serious and did you complain or request assistance for them? And then if you did get assistance, how well did it fix your issue? And then at the end, uh, would you come back and buy us again? And would you recommend us to other people? And we've now added one additional question is, if you did recommend us to other people, how many people did you tell? And to your knowledge, how many of them took action? And we're actually finding some real payoff in in those last two questions. I can come back to that. So the basic point is that we first identify how many people had problems. And as I alluded to earlier, on average, we find there's a 20% drop in their loyalty if they 
have had a problem. Uh, we then find that normally about 75% of people don't even bother requesting assistance or complaining or asking a question. And of those who do complain, in many cases, they are satisfied. And so we basically find if somebody has a problem and doesn't complain, they're much less loyal. If they have a problem and complain and are satisfied, they're much more loyal. And if they have a complaint and are not satisfied, they're even less loyal than if they had not complained at all. But the critical point that you're getting to is that if people have a, have a problem and they then go into the service system, there's a better than even chance they're probably not going to be satisfied. So the three possible strategies that a CX person faces is, do you want to prevent the problem? Do you want to get the customer to tell you about the problem so you can fix it? And then if they tell you, are you going to be sure you're going to satisfy them? So far and away, the most compelling strategy is let's prevent the issue from ever taking place. And what we have found is that by better setting expectations and onboarding the customer, educating the customer on here's what you bought and here's how to use it and here's how to avoid problems, you can cut problem experience by at least 50% and in many cases, even, even more. And we were recently working with an internet service provider that uh, when they had effectively onboarded people, educated people uh, by getting them to look at a couple of videos, uh, what we found was that customer ratings of the overall service that they got from that internet provider went up 40%. And they really hadn't changed the performance of the system at all. It's just they had reset customer expectations. And it was on critical things such as outages, download speeds, uh, and, and the ability to stream. And so if, if through education, which doesn't cost very much, you can dramatically enhance your ratings, that's a heck of a lot better than spending another billion dollars on internet infrastructure. John, everything you say makes total sense to me, Mike. Probably the question that doesn't make sense to me is why aren't more companies doing this? It makes complete sense to prevent as opposed to uh, recovery. What's causing um, companies not to do this? Well, I, there are probably three reasons. First of all, uh, an awful lot of the people who have problems never complain about it. And, and, if anything, in looking at our national rage study that we do every two or three years, we're just getting ready to, to field the next one. Uh, what we have found is that people are complaining less to companies. They're complaining more on social media and elsewhere. Uh, and they're, they're complaining via many more channels. Uh, we're now finding chat is, is actually surpassing the telephone as the, 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 the biggest single channel, at least in, in some industries. So uh, an awful lot of the, the pain companies aren't hearing about. And if it's out of sight, it's out of mind. Uh, secondly, we find that companies really don't like bad news and there are an awful lot of companies that, that when we suggest this idea of presenting the customer with a list of points of pain, the marketing people go crazy 
and, and say, good grief, why are you reminding him about that problem? Uh, maybe they forgot about it. Uh, no, they didn't forget about it, but, but they, they uh, and in many cases, people are too polite. Uh, like I had uh, some insurance customers who said, well, I go to church with my agent, so I'm never going to complain about him. But now that you have, that he misled me on the list, yeah, I'll check it off then. So you're giving per- people permission. And uh, then the, the third real issue is that uh, people are afraid of getting this list of problems because they're afraid they're not going to be able to fix everything. And yes, that's, that's probably true. There's stuff that you can't, but there's a lot of things you can fix. At Federal Express at one point, uh, Fred Smith went out and said, we've identified there are a number of points of pain. Some of these we can't fix, but we understand you're unhappy with, with our claims process and our invoice adjustments. We're going to fix those. And the reaction from the marketplace was, wow, you're actually listening. And so you don't have to fix everything. If you just fix a few things, that shows the customer that you're listening. So, so it's basically, I think that, that it's the path of least resistance is to, well, let's just tinker with general satisfaction issues. And, and you know, the fact we're measuring makes us feel good, but that, gee, we don't really want to dig into the data too far because it, it's uncomfortable. And the last comment I'll make on this is Jeff Bezos uh, I think has the right attitude in his shareholder letter of 2018 in the page two of the letter, one of the headlines was we are going to scale failure, which was shocking. And he basically said, we're doing a bunch of experiments and a bunch of those experiments are going to fail. But if we don't have some big failures, it means we're not taking risks to try and fix things or improve things. So having some failures is absolutely required if you're really going to be doing continuous improvement the right way. And he actually got some pushback from the investor community on, on that, but uh, he's giving his staff permission to take risks, which is very atypical. It certainly is, John. <clears throat> By the way, listeners, uh, for our regular listeners, John has been on this podcast in the past, and we've had some outstanding discussions on some of the topics that he is mentioning here. So be sure and listen to some of those previous podcasts with John, because each one is filled with um, lots of interesting information, data, studies, and and perspectives that John and his team share. So, so John, um, let's say I'm an experienced professional. I've I've followed the the path that you've outlined and now it's time for that discussion with my management team what exactly do i talk to them about what what are some of the questions that you've suggested that uh, an experienced management professional asks of the management team well one of the first ones is uh to ask is word of mouth important in our industry and in just about every consumer goods uh area, it's very important. And in every B2B area, it's important. Uh, And this gets your marketing and salespeople on board, because if you can get your word of mouth to be good enough, marketing and sales can sort of relax and be very, very successful. My favorite example is the Cheesecake Factory. Uh, Their word of mouth 
is so good that, uh, to quote their president, their marketing expense is one quarter that of their direct competitors because, again, to quote him, we let our customers do our selling for us. Harley-Davidson, USAA, uh, those companies get more than 70% of all their new customers from referrals, which is free. The other interesting finding is that customers who are acquired through word of mouth are much less price sensitive. So they're worth at least 25% more. So uh, that then starts getting the marketing and sales guys attention. You then say, okay, are we setting proper expectations? And in many cases, the marketing guys get nervous because, well, we're not really telling them the full story. We now have research that shows that being transparent and honest and warning customers about, well, here are two, three things, limitations you need to be aware of. That's actually a delighter. Our 2021 delight study found that two of the most powerful delighters are transparency and honesty. And so you can counter the concerns of marketing and sales by saying, hey, this really does show the customer that you're being you know, transparent and, and that they're getting good value for money. Uh, then you need to say, are we effectively onboarding our customers? And we find that over half of companies haven't even assigned onboarding as a function to somebody in the company. Sales and marketing get the signature on the contract and they immediately run to the next prospect. And no one really educates the customer on what they've gotten. And in a couple of surveys that I've done of over 200 CEOs of small and medium-sized businesses, the consensus is 30% of businesses, business executives, don't read their contract carefully. So they really don't know what they bought. And also in many cases, what we find is the executive who buys the product or service is not the one who's using it. And no one has really educated the customer, the end user on what has been purchased and how to, how to use it most effectively. Salesforce is one company that has done a pretty good job of that in that they have success executives who come in after the sale and do the education up and down the organization on here's what you bought and here's how to get the most out of it because they have found that if you're not using all the functionality, you're not getting the most value and there's a chance they may, lo they may lose you down the road. A fourth question would be, do your employees know the value of the average customer? And do they know how much they should be willing to spend or how much effort they should take to retain a customer? What we find is that very few employees are effectively empowered via what I call flexible solution spaces. For this difficult issue, here's some of the ways you may attack it and here's how much you can spend. Having issue-oriented empowerment works dramatically better than the Ritz-Carlton approach of you're empowered to $2,000. Well, when am I supposed to spend it and when is it inappropriate? Uh, we find blanket empowerment doesn't work. But if you empower people on here's what you should probably do or the range of your empowerment for, for these five issues, now they have benchmarks and can make independent decisions based on that. And then... Finally, uh, asking people, would surfacing un 
foist problems be profitable in our environment? And the answer is always yes. We would rather know than not know. And in fact, a lot of companies now are using the message, we can only solve problems we know about. Uh, and that's scary at the beginning because you don't know what you're going to get. But we find that surfacing problems always leads to generating more revenue. And in fact, we did a, a brochure for, for Salesforce a while back that said less complaints is not necessarily good. It's better to hear from unhappy customers than to not hear from them. Excellent, John. Our time together always goes by so fast. Listeners, John Goodman, one of the brilliant minds in our industry, just gave you an outstanding roadmap for uh, what are the elements of an effective business case and then what's the discussion you need to have with your management team. So this has been indeed a really um, uh, effective conversation that John shares his knowledge of working with many clients. John, before I let you go, uh, two final questions. One is any final words of wisdom for our listeners as uh, on this topic or others related to experience management? Yeah, one thing that we've really started digging into, and I was very pleased to, to, to take a look at some of the data, is this whole concept of delight is uh, very easily delivered in a consumer environment in terms of you can have a staff member show enthusiasm in any transaction. And we found that it even works very effectively in digital. So if I send you an email that says, I would be delighted to help you look for your package. I am the superhero of lost packages. That can create delight and and really foster a lot of positive word of mouth and willingness to, to, to spend more with you. Uh, what was interesting is we've now found that delight seems to apply in a business-to-business environment in almost exactly the same way. What we found for a major software as a service provider uh, that the average contract is probably a million dollars is that those uh, customers who said that they were delighted or had their expectations significantly exceeded uh, had net promoter scores of anywhere from 18 to 40 points higher than those who uh, were, were only just completely satisfied. So even in a B2B environment, we're finding that it makes very good sense to uh, empower your staff to be enthusiastic, spend time educating, and even uh, use a sense of humor, which most of the world is afraid of. So true. And last but not least, John, uh, if our listeners want to learn more about the fine work that you and your organization are doing, what's the website that they should go to? Uh, they should go to CustomerCareMC, that's CustomerCareMatthewCharlie.com, and uh, they can see a number of videos that I've done there, also uh, get the latest 2021 Delight Study and the latest National Rage Study. And there will be a new National Rage Study coming out probably in July. And we've got probably 100 papers or more uh, that describe in great gory detail the economic modeling. And also I talk about the, in a video the contents of my late, latest book, Strategic Customer Service. 
Absolutely. Get his book, listeners. John Goodman, thank you so much for your time today. And listeners, this has been another episode of the All Things Considered CX podcast with your host, Bob Asman. If you've enjoyed this, please share it with your network. And as always, stay tuned for future episodes of this podcast and my fellow podcasters as part of the CXFM radio network. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of All Things Considered CX. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Subscribe to our show, follow me on LinkedIn, and visit my website at InnovativeCX.com for more insights on creating better experiences. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit CXofM.org for more resources.